Welcome to another episode of On the Issues with Alain Ben-Mir. Today's guest is Ray Takei, Senior Fellow for Middle East Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations and a former Senior Advisor on Iran at the State Department. In this episode, Alan and Ray discuss the mindset of the Iranian regime and what the U.S. understanding of it may be, the so-called axis of resistance and Iran's use of proxies in various regional conflicts, and how that regional involvement is impacting the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the current war in Gaza. Again, thank you, Ray, really, truly, for taking the time. You know, Iran has been in the news so much lately that I thought perhaps nobody is better than you to talk about Iran. Uh, And I just want to start this conversation by asking myself, asking you, do we here in the United States, does this administration really understand the mindset of the Iranian regime? When I talk about mindset, other than what we know on the surface, but in terms of the psychological aspect, where they come from, because as I know, as I see, I'm sure you see, I'm sure the same thing, the Iranians are operating strategically, whereas we are sort of operating from a very short-term approach to Iran. So let me leave it at that and have a conversation first on that. That is, do we have a clear understanding where Iran, what Iran is all about, what they're trying to achieve, how they're going to go about to achieve it? And, and then we can talk about the prospect of success or failure or something that's in between. But that's a, that's a threshold question, and it's an important question. Uh, I'm not quite sure if any administration since 1979 has fully understood uh, the various dimensions of the Iranian ideological system. I'm not sure if people on the outside have as much penetration of that system as as one would like uh, because we've been estranged from one another for so long there's no diplomatic representation and so forth and it's a very different political elite in charge I would say we have missed two large things uh, and continue to do so Uh, the importance of ideology in the Islamic Republic's calculations even when those ideological exhortions become self-defeating for the regime. The second is the ability of the Islamic Republic's elite to sustain that ideological and revolutionary heritage long after the passing of the founder of the revolution which makes the regime different than other revolutionary regimes who have reinvented themselves, whether it's Cuba, Vietnam, to some extent even China. Uh, But that doesn't mean the Russian Federation is not a problem the way the Soviet Union was, but it's a different sort of problem. It has evolved. That's right, yeah. Uh, The Islamic Republic, in a way, has maintained its ideological values, even when those ideological values are to detriment of its own standing at home and its own uh, standing abroad. That's what I think we have missed, the profound centrality of ideology and revolutionary values in the calculation of the political elite in Iran today. That's right. I think, I think exactly you made the right point. I mean, he really hit it on the nose in terms of um, 
you know, the, the United States, we in the United States, we tend to sometimes dismiss archaeology. Um, and and, uh, and specifically when it comes to countries like this, which the very ideology is the, is the air they breathe, day in and day out, and sustaining it, like you said, is essential to their, to their own survival. That is, is beyond, beyond the current regime. And to that end, of course, I've taken many measures, including developing what we they call the axis of, uh, of resistance as a tool uh, by which to sustain that, uh, that outreach. And, and their views, of course, is a control that is to become the dominant power in the, in the Middle East. And to that end, of course, they're making every effort to undermine the United States and position the United States uh, in, the, in the region. They're trying to, of course, undermine or try to even destroy Israel. So they have this kind of objective. And the, the, the question today is that we are here, the Obama administration, uh, certainly not the Trump administration, no, even Obama, for that matter, and before that, we have not articulated um, uh, a strategy. That is, what do we do? What is going to take for the United States to understand that the, what the policy that we have been uh, employing to deal with Iran has been, uh, in my view, a dismal failure? Um, albeit, yeah. Iran, albeit Iran is not necessarily stronger than even it was, say, 10 or 15 years ago. But we have not made significant inroad in order to reach some kind of, let's say, result or consequence that is going to say, we can live with this reality. We don't have a, a framework that we can settle on yet. Uh, the axis of resistance, as it is called, indicates how the regime in Iran can be ideologically consistent and tactically supple because the axis of resistance has been a remarkably successful strategic ploy. It is a multinational, multi-ethnic auxiliary force that is deployed to various regional front lines that essentially provide the Islamic Republic an inroad into those frontiers while all along immunizing its own territory from retaliation. And yeah. you see that and you see that recently with attacks on Houthis or Hamas or what have you. Uh, so the Islamic Republic is allowed to project power on the cheap. Right. They, they don't this is not the US Naval Academy. They don't spend hundreds of thousand dollars on these fighters. They deployed 70,000 militiamen to Syria during the civil war in Syria, which along with Russian air power allowed uh, the Assad regime to survive. They certainly accosted the American presence in Iraq and so on. Uh, and October 7th, of course, they and their allies managed to traumatize the state of Israel. Uh, so this is a remarkably successful strategy and it's cheap and it also precludes retaliation because almost every time the region is in flame, as it is today, what we always say is we don't want to expand the conflict. Right. Even though the conflict has expanded, uh, the conflict today has expanded to Lebanon, to Syria, to the Gulf, to, I mean, it, it, the, but nevertheless, uh, that that is actually, a, 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 as a strategic doctrine, 
is remarkably effective, successful, uh, because it allows you to reach your objectives while maintaining some degree of distance and immunity. And the Iranians don't care how many Arab Shiites are killed in Syria or Iraq or where have you. They're martyrs to the cause that... Of course, one, yes. Well, I mean, martyrdom is the highest point of spiritual achievement. Right. Uh, so, and and we have not, as you suggested, found a way to negate this uh, triumphant strategy. We're trying to contain it by degrading the capability of the proxies, uh, which ignores the availability of such proxies. Uh, you know, they, they can recruit people from everywhere and deploy them and so forth. And so long as we're focusing on the proxies as opposed to the patron, uh, I think the cost of this strategy will certainly be less than its achievements. If those achievements are measured in ideological terms, what right, does really right. Iran practically gain from Hamas's yeah. attack? That's right. This is my this is the point. That is what is the net gain as of now, after from 1979 to right. this day. Yeah, they can point out to so progress in their nuclear program. They can progress disrupting the region to their own, uh, own, own tune, so to speak. But the net gain uh, on the on the regional scales, I think it's still limited. For let's take the example of their investment with Hamas. Mm -hmm. uh, they may very well have had a role to play in the October right. 7th attack. Right. Uh, what was here the net gain? Of course, they got in Israel into this kind of morass, a whole war with massive losses, regardless. And uh, but it changed the dynamic of the region. For example, let's take this example from your perspective. Uh, this war in Israel Hamas war, which certainly Iran supported in somewhere, not, not the war itself, but the attack itself that precipitated the war. Right. Uh, so what happened as a result of this war, the regional dynamic, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict have changed in a dramatic, dramatic way. Right. So you can't really simply restore the status quo ante anymore. There's going to have to be a new order. The, whatever emerged from that, do you think that is going to be more beneficial to Iran or less beneficial to Iran, having more or less Israel is going to crush, to a great extent, Hamas as a movement, which was one of the more important clients of Iran itself? Hamas is important. Uh, simply because it is a Sunni organization, yeah. while most of Iran's clients are Shi'i. So Hamas would allow Iran to transcend the sectarian divide. Now, the goal would be for Hamas to survive in some form in Gaza and come out with a narrative of success. The narrative of success being that they took the brunt of Israeli attacks and they survived. I'm not quite sure today if that's not going to be the case. The Israeli pacification campaign has met logistical complications. It is subject of considerable degree of international focus, if not international censure. It has created divisions between Israel and the United States government. Yes. And it has created divisions generationally in the United States in terms of perceptions of Israel. You know, younger people tend to be more critical than the older people and so forth and so on. Uh, what order can emerge from this? I suspect for a period of time, I can't measure that, Israel is going to be preoccupied with dealing with its frontiers in the south and in the north. Uh, in some form, I suspect Israelis will be 
involved in security in Gaza and so on. So, and this eventually you begin to see, I suspect the consequences of Gaza war and polarization of Israeli politics itself. So a critical antagonist of the Islamic Republic today can be considered somewhat weaker because of its preoccupations, its international estrangement, and at some point there'll be a reckoning of this war within Israeli politics itself. The commissions will be assembled to figure out what happened and so on. Uh, the Israeli attempt to realign the region by peace agreements with Arab states has essentially forestalled and probably forestalled for the foreseeable future because it will be contingent on some kind of a viable Palestinian state, or, which is not in the offing at this point. And the United States is reluctant to become a greater, more enforcement power in the Middle East. And this may even expedite its concerns about disengagement from the region. So in that sense, October 7th has created a scenario where it's hard to see how Iran cannot succeed. The only you way- mean, I'm, Iran? Yes. Okay. Yeah, it's hard to see how they cannot succeed. Uh, now, if Israelis had managed to destroy Hamas, which may never have been possible, then I, and, and then I think the situation might have been a little different, but maybe it's a poverty of my mind, but I can't look at the region today and say, okay, the Israeli alignment with the Sunni monarchies is forestalled. Israeli politics are divided. Israel is involved in security concerns in this immediate neighborhood, which are prolonged and protracted. The subject of international concern, if not censure, the Israeli-American alliance is in a difficult position today, and those difficulties may be exacerbated. And Iranian proxies have taken a beating, but so what? <laughs> so... It's hard to look at the region today and say that somehow something will come out of this in the immediate future that will be disadvantageous to the Iranians. So in one sense, they read the politics of the region a little bit better. Namely, they understood that by inflaming the Palestinian issue, they can retard other objectives of the great powers and the Israelis and the, uh, and the Arab states as well. Yeah, and I think you know, the, the other side of it, I think well, yeah. this is one way that you're looking at it. Yes. Uh, and then the other side, that is, uh, I, may, I maintain and I agree with you that Hamas may not, will not be, as a political, will survive. But in terms of uh, their, their presence in Gaza, uh, it's going to be questionable in my mind. Yeah. That is, I don't see how, what kind of scenario, what possibly I was going to eventually withdraw from Gaza uh, and allow Hamas to reconstitute itself in that, in that strip. So right. that is not likely to happen, which means to some extent you might say that Iran lost that front to some extent, if not entirely, but it has lost that front. But it also has ignited something else. And that is what, I, what I'm what i saying. We, got, we went back to the status, to the, uh, the idea of the two-state solution. It's been somewhat revived. Revived at least at least uh, the narrative today. We are talking more about two-state solution than we've talked about it three, four, five years ago. Right. That is, even right. the United States, even President Biden himself, we've begun to reiterate that, albeit has not yet taken right. any concrete step 
to translate by saying well, two-state solution is the only solution, but no concrete step has been taken. So what I think in I'm, I'm, what I wrote a couple number of pieces on the subject makes that is the explosion that took place as a result of Hamas attack and Israeli retaliation. Like I said earlier, changed the dynamics and also they produced potentially the opportunity for some kind of breakthrough. The question is whether the leadership, both Arab countries, Israel and the United States, can in fact realize that and make a supreme effort to exploit that potential breakthrough and advance the Israeli Palestinian economy. So we can look at it from that perspective. And of course, the Saudis have made it very clear. If you go toward two-state solution, we were more happy to resume the normalization of relations discussion with, with Israel. That is, the prospect of that also evolved probably is equal in terms of, of possibilities than the prospect what you just, scenario you have drawn. Right. So I see these two yes. sort of yes. together. The question is, is going to come to leadership. Which side is going to succeed is depending on to the extent, to a great extent, what the United States is going to do and what the Israeli government is going to do. So under Netanyahu, in my view, nothing is going to change in a very dramatic way in terms in connection with the Palestinians. So here too, we're going to we will have to look at the changing the political dynamic within Israel itself. And then we want to go back to the connection, that how would that connect to, to Iran? That, so that is the other side of the coin that I see. Right. What, what's right. your take on that? Uh, the Israelis today are, are a traumatized society. In some way, the Palestinians are too. It is difficult for traumatized societies to make the type of concessions that are envisioned. Uh, today, the leadership in these countries would be somewhat anchored by the fact that public support for two-state solution doesn't exist among the Palestinians, or if poll the polling is correct, today among the Israelis. It's very difficult for Israelis to concede territory today unless they have some assurances regarding the possibilities of more tranquil surrounding. I'm not that versed in Israeli politics today, but these are basically two traumatized societies traumatized by war, traumatized by the October 7th attack, and they'll take a while for them to sort themselves out. Uh, so in that sense, the possibility of the kind of two-state solution with concessions of territory and security arrangements that would be required is a tough haul. That doesn't mean it should not be tried. That doesn't mean there's no the sh effort should not be mobilized. But it's likely to be difficult to come extend from what I see. Now, as I said, um, there may be things happening that I don't know, and I don't follow Israeli politics very closely. Uh, but should that happen, then, of course, your scenario regarding marginalization of Iranian power is correct. Uh, should the October 7th have radicalized opinion in the region and therefore cause the Arab leaders to be more afraid of their population than even before, then those are restraints and that that and that will empower the Iranians. But the direction that the region goes obviously will affect Iranian status within it. Uh, and they tend to benefit when the region is polarized, inflamed, divided, 
and concern about its, its, its own situation. Uh, that requires a lot of leadership, a lot of healing, I would say. Uh, mm -hmm. So I'm not sure if these two societies, the Palestinians and Israelis, are healed enough today to engage in that pragmatic conversation. Uh, I'm not sure. Well, I need to say when your society goes through the trauma, specifically to the Israelis, right. uh, you know, it's a, what happened October 7 is reminiscent of the Holocaust. Yeah. For the Palestinian, yeah. what's happening in Gaza is reminiscent of 48, another exodus, another disaster, another Nakba. And that's that's creating another psychological dimension that needs yes. to be mitigated. Uh, on the other hand, what happened also is perhaps awakened. That this is the status quo is not no longer sustainable. That's right. It is. It was not sustainable for seventy five years. It now it's perhaps there's more um, awakening among the Israelis. You know, you mentioned the statistic. You're absolutely on 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 the mark. Roughly fifty percent of the Israelis, maybe a little more, oppose the establishment of Palestinian state. But there's also strong constituency now are saying, when when are we going to end this conflict? Right. So obviously. You need a change of government that is clearly come out in support of this two-state solution. I see from my when I look at the Israeli internal political combustion, I see that that possibility may be emerging. Okay, that is Netanyahu can no longer stay in power. It's only a question of when, uh, but probably going to be sooner than that. As soon as this war is over, uh, I think he is. He may be even prolonged prolonging the war just to stay a little longer in power. But once it is done, is a commission inquiry is going to take place? He's weakened. He's, you know, polls suggest that only 10, 15, 20% of the public support the recruit, even, even less than that. So there's going to be a change, political change inside Israel itself. So whether from the Iranian perspective, if they wanted to weaken the prospect of normalization of relations between Israel and the Arab states, to perhaps they have, they have, today it looks like they have achieved to stop the process of normalization between Saudi Arabia and Israel. But on the other hand, the Saudis as the Israelis now, now think in terms of what other options are there in order also to contain Iran, just the same. Right. So, so my feeling is that if we look at the larger picture and say the United States take a, a leadership in this regard, uh, this is a, it's a it's an election year. How how Biden is going to try maneuver? That is a different question altogether. But there is the opportunity also to create a new alignment in the region as a result of that. That is as long if there is a movement toward a two-state solution. That's a prerequisite. Then you can create a realignment. All the countries and the, most of the Arab countries, if there is a resolution to Israeli-Palestinian conflict. They will follow Saudi Saudi Arabia. So when Saudi Arabia does that, many Arabs will fall in line, other than those who already have. So there's that change. What what do you see there? I mean, there's that potential realignment in the region, and how that might play, and and how Iran might see that. Well, I suspect the Iranians will try to be disruptive of that. Yes. Such alignment is imaginary, and the way they would disrupt it is by terrorism. Because once once again, if Israelis are subject to suicide bombers and so on and so forth, then that would have an impact on their politics, as they did in the late 90s, 
throughout this period, terrorism has been used to obstruct peacemaking. So their reaction would be one of unleashing terrorism to the extent that they can. Yeah. Some of that would be contingent on what happens in Gaza itself. Uh, who governs Gaza? Who administrates Gaza? What are the security provisions? How is the how is that enclave going to be rebuilt? Who pays for its rebuilding? Uh, there are so many unsettled questions regarding actually what comes out of that particular strip of land, which is that in of itself, the reconstitution, the reconstruction of Gaza and determining who is to administrate it. United Nations, well, the Israelis don't really trust the UN. That's uh, right. A multinational Arab force. That's a lot of confidence in the multinational Arab force. Uh, Palestinian Authority. Is Palestinian Authority prepared to do so? Can it do so? Is it prepared to do so as a sort of a as a sort of a resurrogate and representative of of the international community of Israel and the United States and others? Uh, and what happens if there's violence within Gaza itself with remnants of Hamas's military wing engaging in suicide attack, terrorist attacks, and so on and so forth, and the Israeli in intrusion in terms of his security concerns? So that particular area has to be in some way addressed. And at this particular point, the only way I can see it, I may be wrong about this, from the Israeli perspective, as, as I think Prime Minister Netanyahu has said and others, that Israel will remain concerned about security development in Gaza, which leads me to believe some kind of an IDF occupation or some kind of an involvement. And so long as that's the case, that emotional aspect of this conflict will resonate and, and, and the Iranians can certainly take advantage of that. The Islamic Republic's plan uh, is a rather sinister one, is to take advantage of misery of Palestinians to advance its mm -hmm. cause. And so long as Palestinians are miserable, its cause lives on, the dream endures. <laughs> yes. uh, and, and we haven't even spoken about the northern frontier. Uh, right. There's 125,000 Israeli citizens who are afraid to, re to go back to that. Go back to their place, yeah. And would, would the Israeli government have to take some kind of a military action to create some kind of a zone of security in the north in order to get those populations to go back, will there be some kind of a negotiated arrangement with the Lebanese government? What kind of a security perimeter will be in the north? Those are heavy issues that the Israelis have to sort out with their immediate neighbors. And I think what was considered for a long time is that the immediate neighborhood didn't matter as much. It was calm and quiet, and the Israelis can therefore make uh, align, make, make peace agreements with the outer ring, as Ben Gurion would say, but the inner ring has exploded now. Yeah, you know the basically the other the other side that is based on what you know, you know that the assessment is being made now that uh, Iran obviously does not want to get into direct conflict with the United States or yes, with Israel right. for that matter, mm -hmm. and they are also discouraging Hezbollah from engaging with right. Israel. You know, so they have to have a show. That we are not sitting quietly, the Palestinians are suffering, so they're making yes. a little noise. Relatively speaking, there's a little noise in the north, albeit it has a sort of repercussion. 130 plus thousand Israelis are not are, need to go back home. In my conversation with some Israelis, are saying, 
we want to sort of solidify what's going on in Gaza. Solidify in the sense where the major, major onslaught, the major war will become no longer necessary. That is maintaining the security right. for a while, but that no longer need to attack another city. There'll be no more cities to attack. And once they they get to that point, which they feel certainly uh, they feel certain about it, it's only question how much longer it's going to take, and to what extent they can mitigate the problem of the civilian moving from Rafah into other areas, so they will reduce the casualties, which is the outcry, correct one, by the international community. So they're trying to figure this out, but I see from their perspective determination that once this is this is consolidated. Right. Is they, they have more the focus on the north. They will be focusing on it. And there are voices, including the some of the members of the war cabinet, who are saying, we will hit Iran if it becomes necessary. I mean, uh, Hezbollah. Hezbollah if it becomes necessary. Right. And one of the reasons, which is however sinister and painful, what Israel has done in Gaza is also uh, sending a message to Hezbollah and to Iran, then when it comes to Israel national security, when it comes to this kind of ex trauma they have experienced, that Israel will go to any length and won't concern itself with any international community criticism or anything, because national security is first, they seek one night, and they will do whatever it takes. And so basically they put Hezbollah on notice, as I, as I see it. That is, you know, you can go perhaps this far, but not you know, not across certain red lines. And that's why there is some negotiation in terms of how much, how many kilometers they can push Hezbollah away from the border in order to allow the Israelis to come back to their communities. So there's this dynamic is in play. We, we do not know how that's going to pan out. Here again, has Iran benefited from that? That is, their concern not having major war, either with, certainly not with the United States or with that one or Israel. Uh, hasn't that now exposed certain weaknesses because they are themselves discouraging Hezbollah from going into full-scale attack? There is always, throughout history, divisions between patrons and proxies. They always have different priorities to some extent. And one of the views you can take is by putting as much pressure on Iranian proxies as is happening today, whether it's the Houthis, whether the demise of Hamas, at least to large extent, and all that, would, and the fact that the Iranians have made it very clear they will not engage in conflict in order to salvage and rescue their proxies. Does that create divisions further, further fissures between Iran and its proxies? I think for the Shi proxies, the, those operating in Iraq, Hezbollah, perhaps not so Hamas, the ideological binds are so fundamental that those fissures are unlikely to be disruptive. That doesn't mean they won't have disagreements. That doesn't mean they won't have questions about each other's tactics. But in that sense, there is that ideological commonality that exists. Second of all, Iran and its proxies are close because they share the same objectives. They want eviction of the United States, destruction of Israel, 
they all animated by certain measure of anti-Semitism and anti-Americanism and so on and so forth. Take Houthis, for instance. The Houthis came to their anti-Americanism and anti-Semitism all by themselves. Mm -hmm. They were not instigated toward that impulse by the Iranians. The Iranians have logistically enabled Houthis, but they didn't yeah. create their animosities and enmities. And they came to exploit that. Yes, the, uh, obviously. So in that sense, that auxiliary force, to some extent, will remain intact. That doesn't mean it cannot be weakened. That doesn't mean it has the same power to inflict punishment. And also, it's important to say, what is the Iranian tactical strategy today? I mean, they understand that they cannot change the facts on the ground in Gaza. The Israeli military will engage. But essentially is to inflame the conflict to a degree that causes the international community and the United States to impose secession of conflict on Israel before achievement of his mission. And that may or may not be possible. Uh, uh, there was some press commentary back a couple of weeks ago in Iran when there were some who were suggesting that this strategy actually is not working. The international community is mobilized, but it's not succeeding in imposing restraints and a ceasefire on the Israelis. That may change. That may change because the logistical challenge of pacification of Gaza, and this is becoming an issue in the bilateral relationship between the United States and Israel. That's right. Uh, a serious bilateral issue. Uh, so that may actually change in a sense that the Israelis may have to concede. That, by the way, some kind of an agreement can come about as we speak. Mm -hmm. and nobody is going to say we have a permanent ceasefire. What they're going to say is we have a six-week ceasefire, which we renewed every other six weeks. So that is the kind of a hope in Iranian circles that Israelis are going to be restrained before they finish the job, as they define to finish the job, and maybe the job could never have been finished, the categorical uh, kind of demise of Hamas as an organization, political or for that matter, some kind of a military wing. It's, if the intelligence community is to be believed, uh, and I haven't seen the latest statistics, oh, only 30, 40% of the Hamas soldiers are disabled. So there is still some force you can use maybe not as a standing army, but as a paramilitary force that, mm -hmm. you know, engage, that continues assault the occupation force as they are, as, as happened to the United States and Iraq. Now, as you kind of say, there's no, this could go one way or the other. That's right, yeah. It's not predetermined. Uh, nobody can say the Iranians will necessarily come out of this triumphant. They may have miscalculated and the region may sort itself out in their opposition. Uh, that's entirely possible. It's just not determined at this point. Yeah. That doesn't mean, and, and this scenario of, I think all the leaders, I, I suspect Palestinian leaders and, and Ramallah, certainly Israelis, certainly Arab monarchs, want Iran's marginalization. And they understand the cost of not dealing with that. But whether they can all muster the necessary, what you call leadership, correctly leadership, and courage to do so, that remains to be seen. I personally don't have that much confidence in Arab leaders. 
particularly because these are incumbent governments often afraid of their own publics. Yeah, I mean, obviously the distinction has to be made. And yeah. And you, you said it between the public public perception, public opinion among the Arab countries right. versus the leadership. The leadership is a question of survival. Yes. And for, as, as they see it, will their survival be enhanced by the recent event that is, right. will come closer to creating some kind of alliance with Israel uh, in order to blunt, to stop Iran where it is, you know, and that is seen to me is getting more traction, even though the public itself is against, because what they see happening in Gaza certainly is not endearing the Israelis in the eyes of the various Arab publics and various Arab countries. But the leadership, the leaders themselves who are, who wants to, trying to make sense of this, or trying to actually to convert this uh, crisis into some kind of, to become more beneficial as a result, something benefit is bringing them closer. I think this is one of the reasons, in my view, that the, none of the Arab countries, which is interesting, or at least with Israel, yes, even will even call their ambassador. Right, right. I mean, well, Jordan did it for a short, but for different reasons. But all of them, the yeah. UAE, Bahrain, uh, certainly right. Egypt and uh, Morocco. And, and that is, to me, was a signal. I mean, I hope, I think you probably agree. Yes, I do. And, they are, they are not saying, uh, looking at this as a, well, it happened because the, in their mind, if they don't say it publicly, the Palestinians are much to blame. That's and right. certainly they have common hatred toward Hamas in particular. And, yeah, they, they, and they see, they want to see Hamas being crushed. Mm -hmm. yes. They want to see Hamas being crushed. Right. Because inadvertently that's going to also weaken uh, um, the so-called axis of resistance that Iran is pursuing. But going to your important point that you made, that is, has the Iran, in fact, made a strategic mistake here? And to what extent that is, if they openly, almost openly say, we don't want war. Yes. And then and telling Hezbollah to stay off, no, no, not to cross a certain red line, they expose them, they expose certain weakness. Absolutely. Expose that weakness. And so the net game, if we look at it today, they may... They have not come out of this as they were before October 7. Uh Their rhetoric is still absolutist in, in terms of celebrating the Hamas attack and praising the forces of resistance. But as you said, they, by so publicly declaring their aversion to expansion of the conflict, the weakness they have exposed is actually they're standing at home because what they're signaling uh rather i would say clearly is they're vulnerable at home in a sense that if there's a conflict that comes to iranian territory it will not redound to their domestic political advantage of course and at the time when the regime is at odds with its own public and the elite are at odds with one another, uh, the regime doesn't have the domestic strength to have a conflict abroad. The vulnerabilities and weaknesses of the Islamic Republic are profound. Its economy is not in good shape. Its public is estranged. It certainly appears to be in a rebellious mood. 
And what they have to address is paradoxically a problem not that dissimilar to the monarchy in 1978-79. A profoundly successful foreign policy is predicated on a weak domestic foundation. And the success of that foreign policy do not result in refurbishing the regime's political fortunes at home. This is a problem of an ideological regime. It is pursuing mm -hmm. objectives which fulfill some kind of an ideological mandate without paying attention to the fact that the costs are more obvious than the benefits to the public. That's right. And so certainly the Islamic Republic has exposed itself and the exposure has been rather pronounced in terms of the wobbly foundations of the regime at home. Uh, and should it suffer a defeat abroad along the lines you're suggesting, that will further undermine its authority at home, while success abroad don't enhance its authority. So that's kind of a no, in a, in a way, it's a no-win situation. But at this point, they're not at that point, because yeah, yeah, I can see. Uh, you know, going going back to what you started with, which is correct. You know, there's the ideology as far as that, that which are. For them, that is the, the, the lifeline, that is their ideology, and they live by that. And then this question of sustainability, to what extent they can sustain that. Um, in terms of sustainability, domestically, uh, I don't think it was, a, they haven't been able as yet to really claim victory yet, because there is tremendous disenchantment and unhappiness of the, of the Iranian public That's with right. the government, yeah. albeit they cannot go out in the street and demonstrate by the hundred or the million and try to make their voices heard. So we have that. That, that is, of course, that is a major domestic weakness, major weakness. And so they're going to have to attain significant, significant foreign policy achievement or gains. So sort of, at least to demonstrate to the Iranian public, look what we have achieved. So they made, of course, bilateral good relations with Russia, with China, yes, uh, and all of that to show them, look, we are we don't have to depend on the West. We can stand on our own. We have our different allies, just as strong, just as et cetera, et cetera. But is the, 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 from your perspective, the Iranian public is not buying necessarily that. Yes. They're not that's, buying that. That's and right. so the arrest, the that's that is, you know, be that because of the not, women not wearing the shawl, for whatever reason, uh, there is that kind of uh, this, uh, the unhappiness and shamanism. It is simmering, in my view, below below the surface. That's absolutely now, right. My question to you, if you mm -hmm. agree, that at one point or another, it could explode. It could explode in the face of the Iran, in spite of the fact of the horrifying domestic measures that are taken to suppress the people. Uh, so is there a point in time, because regime like this, historically speaking, they really could not survive. That is, yes, dictatorship survived. Look at the Arab countries. Kings survived, Saudi Arabia, other. They can survive centuries for that matter. But they are not, not to the extent that it's so oppressive. That is, oppression sort of uh, erodes that the kind of regime that was a creative shift. So here, the, the, my, as I see it, the Iranian public is a question of time. 
maybe five years, 10 years, 15 years, maybe less than that, there's going to have to be some kind of explosion that the Iranian will not be able to contain. That is the, I want to go back to your important point. This is ideology they can sustain, but they, they have, but it's just, is it sustainable and for how long they can sustain? Recently, the country commemorated the revolution, uh, February 11, 1979, and recently they had uh, the usual annual commemoration. This particular commemoration was rather muted. And you wouldn't expect that at the time when the regime is so triumphant. But it's rather muted. I don't think they wanted to organize large-scale demonstrations to bring people into the streets at the numbers. That could get out of hand. You could see opposition. Uh, the Islamic Republic, unlike even the monarchies in the region, does not even pretend to address the concerns of its citizens. That's right. In terms of political representation, now the Saudis don't either, but what the Saudi government is trying to do is give you cultural emancipation and some sort of economic security in light of lack of political opportunity. Whatever you think of that bargain, which in its own way is unsustainable. Uh, the Iranian government is not giving you cultural emancipation. It is has closed down avenues of political expression, and its economic situation is, is as has always been the case, rather rather it's tenuous. Dismal. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. So, but there is one thing that they get going for them beyond security services, which, in my opinion, in the end, will prove unreliable. Brain drain. They. A lot of people are, this is not the Soviet Union of the 1950s. You can leave. And right. the problem, and some people have highlighted this problem, yes. namely that people of certain acumen who can get a job as a software engineer in Australia leave, which is very detrimental for the potential growth of the society. Uh, I don't think the problems of the regime overseeing 85 million disgruntled citizens can be resolved by brain drain. That's right, and that's a major but, factor. It's a major factor. Yes, yes. And it's it's, it's showing, it's showing, yeah. I mean, the impact of that, the implication of that, it's, I think it's rather transparent. We can we can discern that, we can see that. Yeah. yeah. So, so to your question, whether the regime is sustainable as a business model, no, I don't think so. Uh, and and it's becoming less capable of maintaining order at home for the simple reason that it's relying more on security services. Whenever you do that, that means your other cards of co-option, manipulation, cooperation are not working. And whenever you do that, you're taxing your security services, which is a conscript army to begin with, uh, so overuse of security services is detrimental to the cohesion of those services and also indication that other means of crowd control, other means of political control are attenuating. That's right. I mean, as far as they know, as they see there, there the, the civilian institutions are being developed. Uh, it has to also be in line with the, with the regime thinking. That right. is, and that's, that, is, that is a problem there, you know. Other than the brain drain which is taking place, the 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 institutions, 
the, the organization that's being uh, that exists and new ones that develop, they cannot have you know step too far yeah. away in terms of their thinking from the regime itself. And you're absolutely right when there is no civilian constituency on which they can rely, the rely over reliance on security is become tenuous. That's right. That's right. So this is what's happening. Whereas I think Saudi Arabia are going somewhat in the right, the opposite direction. They are now helping the creation of civilian institution. Yes, without this, you know, with some control, obviously, but they have far greater freedom. Especially since MBS came, I'm not suggesting he's a, the greatest reformer ever, but he certainly has done some inroad into reforming. And so the the Saudis see a trend toward better society mm -hmm. where the civilian the community ha will have a say without threatening the, the regime because the regime is showing more uh, more concern about the welfare and the well-being of the people albeit remains rather you know uh, certainly is not a free society so so uh, just one more one thing sure uh, you know president biden of course been criticized now some say, well, he should react differently to it. That is the tit for tat, that attacking the Iran proxies is not doing the job. And that Iran can afford to lose uh, uh, all the proxies or half of them in terms of weaken them, but they don't want an Iranian soldier to be killed. And they don't want to wage, like we said earlier, they don't want to wage a war against the United States because they know this will be translated almost very quickly to the demise of the regime itself. So they want to avoid that as well. So it, today, uh, today Biden is abiding what he's going to do. That is the voice, especially coming from some sinister Republicans and some actually people like yourself and myself saying, it's not working. The tit for tat is not working. Attacking Iran proxy is not working. Uh, in fact, when uh, the Iranian can get away with so much, I mean, they have attacked American interest in installation um, last six months, like uh, almost 200 places, 200 times, albeit they did not cause too many casualties. And that's, in a way, limited our United States response because there were, as far as, far as that, because there were not too major casualties. And when there were some, well, Biden did something bigger. Uh, so there were 80, 70 targets, again, of Iranian proxies in Syria and Iraq have taken place. But it seems to me that this kind of uh, state of being, that is the back and forth, is, is not cannot be sustainable. That is, we here in the United States, we need to change the strategy. That is to send the Iran a clear message that he can no longer get away what they've been doing so far. Well, I suspect your current U.S. government, like all U.S. governments, has a short-term perspective. And their concern is that if the conflict is taken to Iran, then you have incremental escalation, and that could lead to regional conflagration with all kinds of ramifications. In an election year, I mean, this issue cannot be the management of this issue by the United States. And this is not a partisan comment because I think it would be in any case, in any administration, 
will have to take into account the domestic political context where there is a very close contested election and there's a sizable constituency with the Democratic Party that disagrees with President Biden from the left. And there are some within the Democratic Party who disagree with him from the right. And he has to kind of, they have to figure out the balance between politics and policy. And if you're sitting with that consideration, I suspect that escalation of the conflict is not something you would want at this point. Uh, now, they may have other reasons as well for mm -hmm. not seeking to escalate the conflict. Maybe you could drag the United States into a protracted conflict at a time when it has priorities beyond the Middle East and so on and so forth. I suspect that this particular point, the political variable is, is very much on everybody's mind. Is uh, is how do you manage a political campaign in a conflict that has domestic American ramifications? Oh, I'm serious, man. I mean, the, with the hand though, there's two process of thoughts in this respect. That is, if there is major conflict, let's say a war, mini war, that is strengthen the hand of the government of the party of in power. Yeah. That is, in a time of conflict, yeah, we the people need to rally around the the government. And this may say that it's a theory so that this could strengthen uh, Biden's hands rather yeah. than weaken. And there are those who say, well, like what you suggested, in this such time, uh, it's very difficult to how to you work it out when you fight with, with the election. And so he's pulled and pushed between two directions. And he's going to have it's a tough decision for Biden, yes, yes. Biden to make. It's going to be tough. But I think uh, the, the the continuing of this state, the status that's going on today, is a sort of demonstration of some of weakness. It's seen by some Democrats as well as certainly by many Republicans. I mean, some calling that attack Iran left or right, and some calling more limited attack. But Iran itself needs to be attacked in one form or another. Maybe the nuclear installation, maybe some significant target here and there. Uh, but again, this is up in the air in terms of. To what extent this president, who has different, also been criticized from different kind of different reasons, age, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, will he be able to demonstrate that kind of decisive leadership? We're going to take one way or the other, or maintain the current course, uh, escalating a little bit just to demonstrate, you know, if you keep keep doing that, we're going to attack you harder, but not Iran, not on Iranian territory. This is a dilemma he faces, and we don't know what he's going to do at the end. Um, and that's, I mean, in the whole, in that regard, I think the Iranian, uh, if he continues this path, Iranian can say to themselves that they are succeeding, that preventing the United States from attacking it directly. Well, in a, sense, can, in a sense, that credits the axis of resistance strategy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, in that sense, they, can, they are succeeding, quote, unquote. Right, because right. That's the managed that's right. That way. right, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, Ray, we can talk about this for a long time. That's right. That's right. <laughs> it was a true pleasure. Thank uh, you very much. With you. And uh, I would love to uh, get together with you when I'm in D.C. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to this episode on the issues. You can find this podcast on my SoundCloud page. And stay tuned to my social media accounts 
for the latest analysis and announcements.